First Chronicles chapter number 28. First Chronicles chapter number 28. You know, we keep, we keep shuffling around how we're doing the service a little bit till we can find our feet underneath us. And, uh, so I appreciate your patience in that endeavor. And, uh, we want to try to figure out the best way. It's funny how doing, changing one little thing, taking the handshaking time out, uh, how that, that is disruptive to everything else that we do as far as the flow of the service. There's some things we do during that time, uh, that we're not able to do and we got to make space for it some other place and this, that and the other. And, uh, so we, I appreciate your patience in, in that matter. First Chronicles chapter number 28. I want to read my, my text and then we'll have a word of prayer this evening. Ask for the Lord's blessing. Are you excited to be in the house of the Lord? Man, I'm glad to be here. I, what a great crowd for Wednesday night, and I appreciate your faithfulness. And I know there's some out in the parking lot in vehicles. I appreciate your faithfulness in being uh, here as well. Can't wait for the day. We can all be back, uh, see one another face-to-face, look forward to that, but know that we love you and we're, we're praying for you as well. First Chronicles chapter number 28, verse number 1. The Word of God says that David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands and captains over the hundreds and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons with the officers and with the mighty men and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in mine heart to build an house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war, and hast shed blood. Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler, and of the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon, my son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. Now, therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord, and in the audience of our God, keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord your God, that ye may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. Now, I want you to notice especially verses 9 and 10 tonight. David turns his attention attention to his son Solomon, and he says, Thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing and privilege it is to be here with your people in your house. If we had what we deserved, we'd be in hell tonight. But you, by your grace and by your mercy, has seen fit to redeem us, to save us, and through your uh, extension of the gospel to our hearts and, and to our ears, we've received that grace and that mercy. And now here we sit tonight as children of God. Think of that, that we should be children of God, that we gather together and that you, Lord, would deal with us, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd stir us, that you'd be patient, long-suffering with us, uh, Lord, as we endeavor to serve you. I pray that you would have your will and way tonight, Lord, not just in the service, 
But Father, also in these requests that have been given, many hearts have been poured out and there's no telling the numbers of tears and and hours of prayer that is summarized on those little note cards. But Father, there's not a one of them that has escaped your attention. Every tear you put in a bottle, Lord, every moment of of prayer you take note of and, and record of. And so, Father, we know it is in good hands that we leave these matters. And help us, Lord, to uh, leave them with you in confidence, knowing and trusting and believing that you care for us. Let us cast all of our care upon you. Father, bless the preaching tonight. May it magnify the Lord Jesus, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. You know, when you read the life of David and Solomon, and you come to this point, this is a great transition point in their lives as father and son, but also in the history of the children of Israel. It would appear that in the Bible there is no less than three separate scenes upon which David seems to, in public or private manner, pass the succession of the kingdom on to his son Solomon. It seems as though there's a a scene where he turns it over in front of the court. And that's sort of what we have in front of us in our text tonight. And then there's a a private scene where he gives some counsel and wisdom to Solomon. And then there is a public uh, sort of coronation in which he passes the crown and the throne on uh, to his son Solomon. And each of these instances is, is packed with instructive truth that a person might wish to pass on uh, to their children. You know, I don't know about you, but if, if you've if you've raised children in life before I had kids, I never really thought about things like that. But uh, now as a father, I think very often about the world that I'll be leaving if the Lord tarries is coming, uh, the world that I'll leave behind, the church that I'll leave behind for for my family, the uh, lessons that I will leave behind uh, for my children. I was today doing a little bit of yard work and I was standing there in, in the garage and, and mixing up some gasoline for the weed eater. It's a two-stroke. And, and Lawrence came out and he had drawn a picture of some kind of cartoon character of something that was a ninja with a sword and a dragon and all kinds of stuff. And he came out and he wanted to show it to me. And um, I looked at him and I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to teach him about what a two-stroke motor is. When you, I don't know when I learned about it, Fred, but at some point in life, somebody taught me what a two-stroke motor was. And so I pulled him over to the side. I was mixing the gas up, and I, I explained to him what it was. I found out that he was about as interested in a two-stroke motor as I was in ninja guys with swords and dragons. Amen. But I, but I do seem to be more present in mind as a father in trying to think of, you know, how can I pass things along and trying to be deliberate in teaching my, my boys things and, and instilling in them certain truths and It's a very fascinating, instructive thing that we, you and I, would be privileged to peer into these moments between David, the aged king of Israel, and Solomon, uh, the young heir to the crown, and to consider in all of David's experiences in life, what did he seek to instill in his son in those moments. Now, undoubtedly, David had spent years teaching uh, his son Solomon, but David himself says that he had many sons and Uh, You find he's probably, his home was like most homes. You have those deliberate, teachable moments, but a lot of times they learn by observation. But here in these moments, David goes out of his way to say there are certain things that it's important for Solomon to know. Certain things, if he's going to be a leader 
If he's going to be a, a, a king over this kingdom, that he needs to understand. And it's fascinating of all the things that he could have shared to consider the counsel and advice and instruction that he gives. Look with me at verses 9 and 10 once again. Let's read it together. And I want to preach with the Lord's help tonight on life lessons from a leaving king. Verse number 9, David looks at his son and says, Thou Solomon, my son... Know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. You know, I don't know about you, but if, if I was giving this sort of final advice, I probably wouldn't be talking about two-stroke motors. Amen? I'd probably be distilling life's truths into the very essentials. And I think that's what David does here. And I believe he gives four life lessons as he is departing the throne that are contained in these two verses that I think are important for your life and mine. You know, I think very often that uh, we in our life are too busy. I think very often we have too much clutter. You with me? I'm going somewhere. If you're not, we'll catch up. We'll meet along the road somewhere. And I fear that uh, sometimes we allow the noise of life to distract us. And, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that we'd probably be helped by doing what David was encouraging Solomon to do, to distill down certain great principles and truths of life and try to refocus our life upon these things. And that's what David instructs Solomon to do. Notice these four things with me tonight, and then we'll be done in the preaching. Uh, notice what he says first off in verse number 9. The very first lesson he says is, Know thou the God of thy father. Know thou the God of thy father. And serve him with a perfect heart. And he doesn't stop there. He then goes on to say, And a willing mind. I believe in this short phrase that uh, David relates to Solomon what is the greatest pursuit of life. Can I tell you there are a lot of things you can spend your life doing. There are some people spend all their life trying to accrue money. There are some people spend all of their life trying to accrue power. There are some people that spend all of their life trying to accrue knowledge. And I'm not necessarily opposed to any of those things in and of themselves. I think they are somewhat benign and neutral in and of themselves. They can be wielded for good. They can be wielded for uh, ill. But uh, let me say tonight that the greatest pursuit, the greatest endeavor, the greatest investment of our life that we can make is summed up by what, saw, what David says here. Really, it's even summed up in those first few words. He says, Know thou the God of thy Father. Can I tell you the greatest pursuit of your life ought to be and will be and should be to know God. Now somebody's going to say, but preacher, I know God. Yeah, but you and I, we could know Him better. Uh, there are people that I know and there are people that I think I know. <laughs> and then there are people that I know real well. There's maybe even a few folks I maybe know better than they themselves know themselves. But I'll tell you this, that uh, the greatest thing that you and I could endeavor to do in life is to know who God is. He describes sort of three things here. Notice them with me. First, he instructs him to seek the Lord. When he says, know thou the God of thy father, what does he mean? He means to know his personality, to know his character, to know his wishes, to know God as you would know an individual. Now, how can you get to know someone? Pretty much the only way you can really get to know someone is to spend time with them. 
to seek after them, to pursue after them. And here's what David is basically saying. Solomon, make your life an active pursuit of the personality and personhood of God. And can I ask you something? Do you in your life and do I in my life, do we make it an active goal to know who God is? To study Him. To study His personality. For a lot of years, and I don't guess it's as popular as it uh, used to be, people would walk around with little bracelets, the what would Jesus do uh, bracelets. And, uh, you know, I, and I, I don't look at that with really any opinion, except I'm not necessarily a fan of bracelets, I guess. But <laughs> if you got one on, that's okay. I don't, it don't bother me. I didn't notice it if you do. And uh, But, you know, when you think about that question, what would Jesus do? I feel like oftentimes what it was meant was uh, as sort of a a policeman for men's consciences. But, you know, the, really the only way you could know what God would do is to know who he is. I know in given situations what my sons will do. I know what my wife will do. I know what my family will do. See, knowing what they will do only comes from knowing who they are. Do you and I know God well enough that we can somewhat anticipate his will, his wishes, and his desire? I feel as though very often in our lives, and you stay with me tonight, if I don't get to preaching in the next ten minutes, we'll just go home, amen. But I, I feel that very often in life we have a sort of um, synthetic knowledge of God. We, we view God as an academic pursuit and not as a personality that we are to get to know. An individual that we are to know his, his wants and wishes, likes and dislikes. You know, there are a lot of things that in your life and mine, if we've walked with God any number of years, any amount of time, we ought to know God well enough to know what He would desire in a given matter. And not simply because we can be nailed to the wall with chapter and verse. Now, don't misunderstand me. The way we get to know God's personality is through His Word. But I'm saying this, that our desire ought to be to know Him in a greater way. To know Him not just as a distant God sitting upon the circle of the earth, but as our Heavenly Father, to have a personal relationship with Him. And David says, you know, Solomon, if you can spend your life attempting to know God in a greater way, then your life will not have been ill-spent. Most of Solomon's problems in life came from a, a period of time when he sought to know other gods. Uh, you know, he hadn't finished getting to know the God of glory, but for whatever reason, and we know, the Bible tells us that his wives had turned his heart away from the Lord, but he allowed that grand pursuit of life, that greatest uh, desire and pursuit of life to be derailed in the pursuit of idolatry and paganism. When he's an old man, you know, he never really gets back to where he uh, once was in his spiritual life. But certainly in his old age, he began to realize the error of his ways. Uh, where Solomon went wrong is he led up in that pursuit of knowing the personality and individual personhood of God. God's a person. You ought to get to know him. He's a person. So the first phrase denotes the idea of to seek the Lord. Not only that, look at the next phrase. Then Solomon says, and serve him, or David says, and serve him with a perfect heart. Uh, part of that greatest pursuit of life to know God is not only to seek him, but to serve him. To live our life in his labor and in his service. I wonder how often we view our relationship with God as the sole responsibility that we have to God. In other words... Is your Christian life, does it extend beyond merely your, your devotional relationship with God? Are you doing anything more for God than going to church and talking to Him? Thanks, Fred. Maybe everybody else will jump in here in a second. 
Are you doing more in your walk with God than simply maintaining contact with Him? You see, He's already talked about that knowing Him. Now He goes a step further and says, and serve Him. That tells me two things. It tells me, number one, that knowing Him is a prerequisite for serving Him. It also tells me that knowing Him is not synonymous with serving Him. In other words, our Christian life ought to extend beyond just merely our maintenance of a relationship with Him. Are you doing more for God than just praying to Him? Are you doing more for God than just going to church and being in a pew? Now, don't misunderstand me. You ought to be in a pew. <laughs> you ought to be present. You ought to be here. And I, I don't. that's not any jab at folks that have to be in the parking lot. But what I'm saying is you ought to be present at the house of the Lord. You ought to be here hearing the preaching. But that is only one small element of our relationship with Him. And it certainly shouldn't be the substance of our ser- service to Him. There are a great many people in their life that the most they ever do for God is show up to church. I mean, stop and think about that. Stop and think if that was the most that you ever did in any other area. What if the most you ever did at work was just show up, but you never did any work? What if the most you did in taking care of the maintenance of the house that you live in was to sleep in the bed and nothing beyond that? See, the reality is no area of our life is that acceptable in. No area of our life is that reasonable in. Why would it be reasonable in the spiritual realm? If anything, we ought to be devoting more effort, more energy, more application of ourselves to these spiritual matters. But sadly, so often, all we're doing is treading water. David looks at Solomon and he says, the greatest thing you can do is to serve the Lord. Now, stop and think about it. David was a man of war. David was a man that had took the lives of countless warriors, that had conquered lands, that had overthrown kingdoms and thrones. Uh, David was a man that had slain giants. David was a man that had built the kingdom of Israel. But he says, the greatest thing you can do in life is find what God wants you to do and do it. Serve Him. With a perfect heart. And then notice that last phrase, and a willing mind to submit to the Lord is one of the greatest pursuits of life. For your will to be fully adjusted to His will. For your will to be fully subjugated to His will. I can tell you that a great many of us in life, and this is true of my life, so it's probably true of yours uh, as well. A great many of us, we find ourselves often at... at, at, uh, simultaneous purposes with God. Let me say it that way. In other words, I wonder how often that we are doing the will of God and also doing our own will and never give thought to which will is getting the leeway. There are certain things that I want out of life. There are certain things that I derive value out of. I'll be honest with you, I love going to church. I probably, I want to be careful how I say this, I love going here. I love being here. My, my family enjoys being here. My kids enjoy it. They'd rather go to church than go anywhere else. There is a great temptation that we go to church, not for the Lord, but for the joy that we drive out of. Now, you're going to say, well, well, preacher, you know, what's wrong with that? Well, number one, that's a great pitfall. Because what we'll find is that we'll only go to church as long as we enjoy it. And when the day comes we don't enjoy it, we'll quit going. When the reality is in your life and mine, we all have dry seasons. We all have dry spells. We all have have desert experiences where for whatever reason, often it's a testing in our life and, and a developing in our life. God is bringing us along to a greater maturity. He may not be growing us upward, but He's growing us downward. He may not be growing fruit, but He's growing roots in our life. We all have seasons like that. 
But if we do not from time to time take inventory of our lives and ensure that even if we are at simultaneous purpose and goal and desire with God, in other words, we're going the direction that God's going, we better make sure that in going in that direction, we still have our heart, spirit, and attitude submitted unto Him. I'm preaching to a Wednesday night crowd. You understand that? I'm not preaching to a Sunday morning crowd. I'll do that Sunday morning. I'm preaching to a Wednesday night crowd. You're here on Wednesday night. All right? A lot of places you could be. I'm not asking if you're here. I know you're here. I'm asking, where's your heart? I'm not scolding you for being here. I'm not fussing at you for being here. I'm just saying, that's the medicine we need. Because if we're not careful, as we develop and as we sort of of, of coalesce as a family, as a church family, we will find that the social aspects of what we're doing will become motivation enough and will become substance enough and not the spiritual reality of what God's seeking to do in our lives. Why are you here? It's the question that I'm asking. I, I guess what I was kicking around saying, and I'll just go ahead and say it, is I'd probably go to church even if God didn't. Now, there's a danger there. You understand what I mean? Because there's people all over this city that go to churches that God doesn't go to. And if we're not careful, we will allow that sort of sleight of hand to take place. It's not wrong to love the house of God. It's not wrong to love the people of God. But we need to make sure that in loving the people of God, in loving the house of God, that we don't dismiss the importance of loving and being submitted to the God of the house, Him being preeminent in our lives. A willing mind, surrendered, submitted unto the Lord. The greatest thing you can do in your life is let His will be your will. Now, you won't hear that talked about. You won't hear anything talked about at commencement speeches this year. Amen. But you normally won't hear that talked about at commencement speeches. But the greatest success in your life or my life would be to live a life that was really God's life. To live a life that was not our life, but was so surrendered and so submitted unto the Lord that it had no scrap of our own ambition in it, had no whisper of our own desires in it, but was merely God living through us be the greatest success that we could experience. David looks at Solomon and says, Solomon, do you have a willing mind as regards the Lord? So he describes the greatest pursuit of life. Then he gives this important truth to Solomon. Notice the next phrase. He says, this is why. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. I wrote it down this way. In that first phrase, Know thou the God of thy Father and serve Him with a perfect heart and a, with a willing mind. We have the greatest pursuit of life. But in this next phrase, we have guarding principles of life. You can imagine, if you will, these uh, two truths as being sort of guard dogs in a person's spiritual life. Keeping them on track, steadfast and faithful to the Lord. Notice these dual truths. First, we find them to be a pair of cautioning truths. If in the first statement we were seeking to declare this, that to know God is the greatest pursuit of life, then the second thing we might say is this, that to be known of God is the guarding principle in life. Not just that we would know Him, but to acknowledge and recognize that He indeed knows us. What are these two cautioning truths? And I'm not, I won't even preach them really separately, I'll just mention them. The first is that the content of our heart is known to Him. He searcheth all hearts. That's your heart and that's my heart. In other words, He knows what you love. He knows what you prioritize. He knows what's important to you. He knows what's secondary to you. 
He knows us better than we know us. In fact, Jeremiah, and you've heard this quoted, if you've been in, in, in this church any amount of time, you've heard it quoted a bunch, that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And who can know? You know, the very next phrase there, the Lord says, I try the hearts. I search the, the hearts. I try the reins. God says, you may not know, but I always know. Now, that should, that's a cautioning truth. That, that, should, that should sober us to realize that at the end of the day, we may have developed this system of portraying to the church crowd what we want the church crowd to see, to the work crowd what we want the work crowd to see, to the family crowd what the family crowd likes to see. But at the end of the day, you know, God sees it all. And He sees what's really important to us. He sees what we're making a priority of. He sees what we're phoning in. The content of our heart is known to Him. And then, number two, the content of our head is known to him. He says that he understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. Now, here in a moment, I'm going to make application of this uh, in a comforting way. But before I do, can I just mention something to you? The word imagination is found, oh, a handful, I think 10 or 12 times in your Bible. Do you know that it's never used in a positive connotation? It always carries with it that initial usage of it in Genesis chapter number 6 that the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. And the imagination, I'm not saying it's wrong to have an imagination. God created us with an imagination, but inasmuch as it's dealt with in scriptural terms, it always carries with it the idea of the mind under its own autonomy and authority. When people talk about a person's imagination, what they're saying is their mind is running itself what imagination is. It's your mind running itself. It's your mind divorced from reality and, and using only its faculty to create a world around it. That's what the imagination is. And it always carries with it a negative connotation in the Word of God. And here I believe that David is cautioning Solomon to this, that God knows what our thoughts are. There are times in our life that, that we have to bring thoughts into obedience. That's what Paul said. First Corinthians, we've got to bring our thoughts under subjection and bring them into obedience unto Christ. There are times things will enter your mind uh, that you didn't plan for, you didn't ask for, and you didn't look for, and it'll just be there. And But once it's there, we have a choice. Do we indulge that or do we expel that? Do we bring that thought under subjection? Now, you and you alone know that. Listen, the mind, the mind is where we see what we really are. Because the mind is what nobody can see but God, Brother Ken. There are things you might indulge in your mind that no one would ever know about. And the mind is the, is the, the acid test of the character. What do you allow your mind to focus on? The Lord knows what's in our head. Nobody else does. But the Lord does. So there's a pair of cautioning truths here. But you know, these same truths could also be a pair of comforting truths. Because when we sort of... Uh, turn them around and consider them in a different aspect. The fact that the Lord searcheth all hearts, you know what it reminds me of? That the Lord oversees us. He's watching over us. When our heart breaks, He knows about it. When our heart is troubled, He knows about it. I believe one of the things that David is trying to communicate to Solomon is this, that you can trust God with your heart. This is a hard truth for us to, to, to gather and grasp. We view anxiety as action. And that's part of our problem as human beings. Anxiety is a, is a counterfeit of prayer. Anxiety is like a rocking chair. It lets you move, but you don't go anywhere. 
Prayer is the opposite. Prayer is us taking an inactive role as far as our actions and committing the activity of the matter unto God. And I fear that very often in our lives, this is a hard thing to to understand, that we don't have to worry our way through this world. We can trust God with our hearts. We can trust Him with our hearts. We can trust that if God puts us through things that hurt, He's not doing it to hurt us. And that through that pain and through that hurt, God will guard our hearts in a sufficient way to keep us humble and tender and spiritual in our relationship with Him. We can trust Him. The Lord oversees us. He watches over. He guards our heart. Uh, There are people that walk through this world with a wall entrenched, built around their hearts, terrified of someone hurting them. Uh, i got news for you. They, in doing that, hurt themselves more than anyone else could ever hurt them. The way of a of a Bible believer, the way of a Christian is to say this. I'm not going to give my heart to the world. I'm not going to give my heart to everybody that walks down the pike. But I am going to give my heart to God. And I'm going to trust Him with it. In other words, I'll love Him unreservedly. I'll love Him in a vulnerable way. I will trust Him with all the matters of my life because He searcheth all the hearts. So the Lord oversees us. And then the next phrase, He says that He understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. I like that word understand. I don't like that word imagination, but I do like that word understand because it reminds me that not only does the Lord oversee us, but He understands us. He understands what's going on in our heart and mind. He understands what we feel. He understands what we think. There are times I don't understand what I think. But God always understands what I think. He understands why I think it. He understands what's so messed up about it, me that would make me think that way and and would make me do this or do that. He understands us at all times. There will be times in your life that, despite yourself, you won't understand why you do the things you do. Now you say, well, preacher, that's ludicrous. Well, it wasn't to Paul. Paul described sort of this crisis of personality when he said, the things that I would, I do not, and the things that I would not, that do I. And then he said this, so then if I do the things that I would not, then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, you go talking like that to a therapist, they'll put you in a padded room. But that was the Holy Ghost talking through Paul. Does that sound like a man that understands himself? I don't think so. Sounds like a man saying, why can't I get a hold of myself? Why can't I, I know what's right. Why can't I make myself do what's right? You know, at the end of, uh, of that, of that whole thing, he goes through that whole big thing about talking about himself and and talking about, you know, the problems that he had. And he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He said, I thank my God. <laughs> I thank my God. In other words, he acknowledges this, that in the midst of all that confusion, all that lack of understanding, that the Lord knew perfectly what was going on in Paul's heart and in Paul's mind. So he describes these guarding principles of life. I've got to hasten. Look at the next phrase. He then says this, if thou seek him, seek who? Seek the Lord. He says, he will be found of thee. Well, now that's interesting because God's everywhere. So obviously this is an experiential statement. It's an effectual statement. It's not an explicit statement. You say, what's the difference? Well, he is to be taken seriously, if not literally. We could say it that way. He's saying that if you seek after God, You'll find God. Well, we know God's everywhere. So he means experientially in your your life, you'll experience the presence of God in your life if you seek after him. Now, that's important because the next phrase, because he says, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. 
Now, I want you to listen carefully. I'm a dispensationalist. I believe it's right to be a dispensationalist. But I don't think we have to dispensationalist this into oblivion and try to declare very often, Mr. Schofield does this throughout the uh, the entirety of his study. But I've got a Schofield study Bible. I'm not against him. I named my son Schofield, not because of the Schofield study Bible, but I did name him Schofield. But one of the things he'll do is he will try to say, and he does this as it relates to David asking the Lord not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Schofield will say things like, well, a New Testament believer doesn't have to pray this. I disagree with that. I think that's a misread of what David is saying. You see, I think that's a difference between the explicit presence of God and the experiential presence of God. Just as there's positional truth and practical truth, well, that relates to the personality and, 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 and personhood of God too. There's explicit truth. There's experiential truth. God's always with me. But boy, it's good when He's with me. He never leaves me. He's everywhere. He's God. He inhabiteth Eternity. He's ever present in every moment. There's not, there's not a state of existence you could go to in which God would be absent in that sense. If you send up into the heavens, He's there. If you make your bed in hell, He's there, the psalmist said. If you take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, He's there. And yet we find as we go through the Word of God that there was a time when Samson wist not that the Spirit of the Lord was departed from him. There's a time when the Spirit of the Lord departed from, from Saul, the king in the Old Testament. There was a time in David's life when he was fearful of the Spirit of God departing from him. This is an important truth for you to glean and to gain is this, that God will always be with you. That's true. But there is a sense in which we can forfeit the blessed experiential presence of God. He talks about the glorious presence of life. What makes life worth living? What makes life worth living is the felt presence of God with us. Now, that's not to say there's not times in our life when we feel distant from God and that those times do not have blessing and bounty in them. But it is to say that the greatest, sweetest experience of life for a creature is to know and feel the presence of His Creator. The greatest thing in your life and mine, the sweetest experience of life, is to know that God is with us. What's he saying here? Well, notice that David relates to him that the blessing of God's presence is available. If, if thou seek him, he will be found of thee. Now, that, how's that phrase starts? It starts with if. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. That tells me that if I'm willing to seek God, I'll find God. It means that in my life, now somebody will say, well, preacher, I already know God. Well, that should mean in this, that if you seek him more, you'll know him more. Isn't that in keeping with what David tells Solomon at the beginning of this passage? Know thou the God of thy father. Solomon already knew who God was. He already knew who Jehovah was. He had been raised in the house of David. But now David is telling Solomon, Solomon, you need to know him personally, experientially yourself. He then builds upon that and says, Solomon, if you will seek to know him, you will know him. In other words, the ball is in our court. Can I give you a New Testament verse for that? Draw an eye unto God. And He'll draw an eye unto you. Wait a minute. I thought God was everywhere. God is everywhere. That's absolutely true. God, The explicit presence of God is everywhere. You cannot escape Him. Oh, but the experiential presence of God, you and I both know. Let's just boil this down to what it is. You and I both know there's such a thing as being close to God and being far from God. If you've lived any amount of time, you've, there's probably been times you've been close to Him. There's probably been times you've been far from Him. 
There's probably been times when you talked to him like he was sitting in the truck seat right next to you. And there's probably been times when you've gone days, weeks, maybe months without speaking to him. There's a difference between being close to God and being far from God. You know it and I know it. And David is here saying to his son Solomon, Solomon, if you want to be close to God, you can be. But you're going to have to take the initiative. Then notice that he says this, that the blessing of God's presence is conditional. I'm not going to belabor this. It's what I. It, it's really the the spirit and theme of of what I've been saying the past few minutes. But look what he says. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Now that means something, or else it doesn't belong in the Bible. And the reason I say that is because there is a great temptation again to sort of compartmentalize that into being some sort of of technicality of Old Testament theology. And I don't think there's any reason to do that. I think we just need to understand it in light of what God does in the experience of humanity as recorded throughout the Old Testament. What does it mean when it says He will cast thee off forever? Well, remember, all of this is being spoken of in the context of Him being king over Israel. Uh, Solomon, uh, because he disobeyed the Lord, because he went after other gods, God told Solomon, were it not for David your father and the promises that I made him, I'd take you off the throne. I'd smite you down. I'd kill you. But because those promises I made, it's not going to happen in your life. It's going to happen in your son's life. So here's what God was saying. Solomon, by all rights, according to the way you've lived, this is what I should do to you, but I'm not going to do it to you. I'm going to do it to your son. Now, what did he do to his son? Well, he split the kingdom in two from him. Rehoboam had a short, unfruitful reign upon the throne of Israel. And he went down in the annals of history as being an abject failure as it relates. The only thing we know about Rehoboam is that he blew it. That's it. Now, it's not to say God started to hate him. It's not to say God ceased loving him. It's not to say that whatever relationship we had, uh, he had with God were it predicated upon faith, genuine faith in the God of the Bible, meaning that it was a saving relationship with God. It was a, a, a relationship of redemption, uh, of experiential sight, that he knew God as his Savior. If that was the case, nothing undid that, just as nothing will undo it today. But I tell you this, I would a lot rather have the hand of God and his blessing upon my life than to merely get out of this life and get into heaven with nothing other than a broken testimony. I want my life to count. How does it count? It counts when I seek Him. It counts when I dwell with Him. And then notice finally in closing, the grand purpose of life. Now this may seem similar to what we said in the opening in the opening statements, but I, I will draw one distinction between them. That in your life, you can pursue after to know God, and that can be somewhat spiritual in its in its application. It's not to say it won't bear external fruit, but it's to say that it relates to your relationship with Him. But notice what God says, or what David, excuse me, says to Solomon, is, is the, the work of God for his life. How he is to serve God. Look at verse 10. He says, Take heed now, for the Lord hath chosen thee to build an house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Can I remind you that what he's talking about here, of course, is the temple in the Old Testament. We still to this day, we call it Solomon's temple. The Bible calls it Solomon's temple. It, it was it was christened with his name and and it never left that that sort of uh, that, that sort of, of distinction throughout the rest of its days. And even after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, they still talked about the greatness of Solomon's temple. But can I remind you that in the New Testament, uh, the temple has not been done away with. It's merely been changed in substance 
and it's been changed in application, but it's not been changed in function. Can I read a few verses to you real quick? That'd be all right. I guess it would. I'm preaching. So I don't know what you came for if you didn't come for that. First Corinthians chapter 6 says this, verse 19. Paul says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now don't get nervous. I'm about 40 pounds away from being able to preach to anybody about being in shape. Amen. So I'm not going to deal with that aspect, although I think there is an application. I think rather what Paul is emphasizing here and what Paul always emphasized was that we be a fit spiritual vessel for the presence of God. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 17. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He says in Ephesians chapter number 2, verse number 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. He's talking about Gentiles there. He says, But fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now let's stop and think about that as it relates to what David told Solomon. Solomon, God's purpose, the grand purpose of your life, is to build a fitting sanctuary. You know what that tells me is that the primary and and preeminent work in your life and mine is that we make our life such that we might be a fit vessel for God to dwell in and manifest His presence in. Have you ever thought about why so much money and so much careful, ornate workmanship went into building the temple? Has it ever dawned on you that God didn't care about any of that? So why did they do that? They wanted to communicate to the world outside that this was a special building and it was a special place. It wasn't built like that to impress God. I don't know if you know this, but they pave roads with gold in God's presence. I mean, you understand that, right? So God wasn't impressed with that. That wasn't the desire. The purpose was to communicate to those that sacrificed that God was worthy of their best, but also to communicate to those that spectated, those that were outside of the household of faith, that God was worthy of such a grand house. Now, that tells me that in your life and mine, one of the great purposes is that we should live our life in such a way, giving our best to the Lord, that the world would behold how we live and say, they think much of their God. Look at the way they live for Him. Look at what they'll be willing to do without for Him. Look at what they'll be willing to labor in for Him. What a glorious God they must have for them to put forth so much effort and so much sacrifice, building a fitting sanctuary. And then this is sort of added, Brother Ken, as like an addendum, like just a little like a, like a little encouragement at the end. I was reading through, or I was listening, actually. Uh, I've got a little app on my on my phone that will read the Bible to me, and I, I was, was mowing today and was listening some to the Word of God, listening to the book of Joshua being read. I noticed every time that God told people something they didn't want to hear, He would always say, be strong and courageous. <laughs> And uh, I guess that's God's way of reminding them that they needed strength sometimes to do the hard things in life. Notice the last phrase. He says, be strong and do it. So our purpose in life is building a fitting sanctuary. But with that, we might say this, to be faithful 
and strong. To do the work that God's called us to. And to have spiritual strength in the doing of it. To allow God to be our strength and our portion. Boy, there's a whole sermon we could spend preaching on the strength of God. How we access the strength of God. Suffice it to say, when I'm weak, then then am I strong. That God's strength is made perfect in weakness. But let me just say in closing this, that the greatest thing that your life and mine could, could be lived for would be that we would live our lives in such a way that it would bring glory to God and that a broken and lost and confused world would be able to look at us and drive, if nothing else, at least this singular thought, they must love their God and they must think a lot of Him to live the way that they live. You know, you'll find this, that once that lost people start making statements like that, asking questions like that, you're not far from being able to win them to Christ because they see something different in your life. It should be that they see something different in our life. Let's bow together this evening as a musician comes to play. I'm just going to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. I'm not going to ask you questions. I've already preached a message to you. I just would ask you to be obedient. If there's some area that we touched on tonight that the Holy Ghost made application of in your life, won't you respond in obedience to Him this evening? Uh, Why don't you meet God at the altar and allow Him to continue that work that He began? Father, I love you tonight, and I thank you for your word. Bless this invitation. May it uplift the name of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name.